brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. George Hunt IV, a.k.a. Dio. A pipe hitter of fame, Dio spent over a decade with Delta Force, the Army's Tier 1 Special Missions Unit. Now, he uses his pen to entertain friends and foes alike. Welcome, George. Thanks for that introduction, <laughs> man. It, it, it's, uh, it was really pretty cool. I didn't expect that. Uh, we have to surprise you. I mean... <laughs> yeah, that was that was awesome, Stavros. Thank you. Before we start uh, with the main questions, can you please go go over your military and post-military career? Yeah, of course. I can do that, and I can be brief. I came in the regular Army as a indirect fire infantryman. That's a mortar crew. My first assignment was a mechanized infantry in Colorado with 4th Mech ID, and I was really unhappy there but i didn't i didn't see a great way out the one the one way out that i readily recognize is that if i could go to special operations units where i'm sure i was sure the level of motivation was much higher than it was where i was at but the one hurdle the one hurdle that was uh, in my way was was airborne school i had to have airborne school to get to any of these places you know rangers or green berets and i still have a real terrible clinical fear of heights so, you know, after a couple of years in that mechanized unit, I was ready to jump without a parachute, frankly. I just had needed to get out of there. So I did go to Airborne, got assignments with uh, some, you know, Special Forces A-teams. Uh, I was there for a few years. And then at, at a lot of people's recommendation, management level and peer level were recommending that I should try out for Delta Force. And I, it, I did try out for it reluctantly, and I actually made it through the first time through selection. So that's where I spent my last 10 years. And if I recall cor- correctly, I was reading your selection and assessment article the other day. You overprepared before your first try, correct? Oh, yeah, I did. And that was my fault. I was nervous. Uh, you know, I at no time did I ever honestly feel that I was able to make it through selection. So that left me with, you know, my best effort, you know, forward. I'm just going to do the best I can. And I remember uh, some words of encouragement from the, the key person that made me decide to go to selection. That's James Nelson Sudruth. He said, you know, George, it's an out-of-body experience. You just got to go. You just have to go there. So I, I did my train up. And I overdid it. I injured my feet. My feet were blistered. The morning that I, you know, packed up my stuff to go catch an airplane to fly to West Virginia, I was carrying my bags and I was literally limping to my car. And and I stopped at the trunk of the car and I said, what am I doing? You cannot limp, you know, to to, uh, Delta selection. 
You cannot be limping your way there. It's just, it's, it can't happen. You're not, I'm not going to recover. So I pulled my bags and uh, made the phone call, you know, to West Virginia and said I was unable to make it. So they said, that's too bad. Uh, you know, wish you the best. Hope, we hope you can uh, try out it in the future. And at that point, you, you know, discouragement was there. And I had no intention of retraining at all. I did the best I could. I couldn't even make it to selection. And one of the one of my students, I was assigned to Key West at the time. I was a cadre member for the Special Forces Combat Dive Operations School. And one of my students had just, his name's Vic Graybear is his name. And he had just come from selection. He came from the same class that I was supposed to make. And he said, hey, uh, Sergeant Hand, were you supposed to make it to be a selection course here recently? And I said, yeah. As a matter of fact, I was. How did you know? And he said, well, I had a bunk. I was assigned a bunk. And it was a top bunk. And the bunk below me had your name on it. Damn. That's and I said, yeah, it was spooky. Very good choice of word. That is, that's, that's really how I felt. It gave me kind of, you know, goose flesh. And it was spooky. And it made me really think. That's a sign. That's an omen. That's whatever it is. And incidentally, that same student, Vic Graybear, he went back and tried later, and, and he did make it. And him and I were there together in different squadrons. But that changed my mind, you know. Uh, I mean, that same day, I just was putting together a plan, you know, getting the mission focus. And uh, I started training that, that same day. And I, I kept up my program. I was never able to meet the recommended guidelines that the unit published for a force selection. You know, like they recommend 10 miles this day at this speed, you know, 20 miles and so on. I was never able to keep up the speeds that they recommended with the weights they recommended. And to me, that said, you, you can't make it then. If you can't do this, you can't follow this curriculum at these standards that you don't have a chance of making it. But then I could just hear James Sudreth in my head saying, George, you know, I can't explain it, but you just you have to go. You need to go. And, and so I did go. And honestly, Patrick Arthur McNamara has the phrase he likes to say, and it, it's with regards to, it boils down to, if, if you go after this, this thing, if you can release, you, you know, the intense drive that you have, if you can release the uh, obsession you have with getting this thing, if you can release that, then the chances of you actually getting it are, are going to increase. And that seems like contrary to a lot of what I've heard growing up, but I've, I've embraced that saying. And uh, when I got to West Virginia, um, it didn't really matter to me if I made it. If I made it, that was going to be great. It was going to be gravy, but I didn't expect to make it. And uh, it wasn't going to kill me if I, if I failed and washed out because I was still going back to a really prestigious position with you know the combat the Cat, Combat Divers Academy. And it just kind of gave me a calm and it, and it chilled me out. And uh, it, that calm just kind of stayed with me as the days went. And I, I was able to regulate myself, it seems. Anyway, it just kept me consistent day after day. And I made it. Surprisingly, I made it through. How did you end up as an instructor at the just Combat Diver Operations School? Kind of a selfish reason, really. When I was stationed with first Green Berets in, in uh, Washington State, um, I had my, the number of years I had in the service at the time 
with with special forces, it, it was mandatory that I had to go pull a few years duty with the Special Warfare Center. In other words, I had to come off the action, the action A teams, and I had to go on an administrative tour for three to four years on the platform, you know, teaching other Green Berets various subjects. And they called that a SWIC levy, SWC levy. And so I was warned, yeah, you're coming up on a SWIC levy. I said, well, I've got to be, I've got to be proactive and I'm, I'm going to be selfish. I want to go out there and I want to, I want to get the, uh, the platform position that I want. I don't want to just show up and have them say, oh, you know, you're going to be teaching map folding at Camp McCall. I'm like, oh. So I, I had my sights set on Key West of Florida because the, the cadre there at Combat Dive Academy, I mean, that, that academy at the time and maybe still is, is the, by far the most difficult uh, special forces course out there. Therefore, the cadre there are just a, a real elite select bunch of guys from, from different A-teams. And that, that's just absolutely what I wanted. You know, I, I, I didn't want to be the best guy ever it, it, someplace. If I was the best guy, I felt, then, then we're hurting because, you know, I'm not all that. And to, so when I went to Key West, yeah, I definitely was not the best guy there. I wasn't the fastest runner. I wasn't the smartest guy. I go, so this is what I want. I'm surrounded by all these guys that are, you know, they're just uh, inviting me to improve myself is what it is. So I felt I really got spectacular influence from those, those guys. And, and, and as a matter of fact, those guys were one by one trying out for the Delta Force, and they were making it. Uh, six guys from Key, the Key West cadre, when I was involved there, six of us tried out for Delta, and every one of us made it. That's remarkable. It is remarkable. It, it, it just really is. I can trace a pattern, though. When you say, if you're surrounded by great guys, be a great guy also. I totally believe that, especially when I got to Delta. You know, like I disappeared in Delta. I, <laughs> I was just, uh, you know, middle of the road person i was surrounded by and younger guys too i was surrounded by younger guys that just absolutely you know choked me with their dust they were they were spectacular you know and that that was definitely a place to be so it, every day was was a, just a challenge to try to get better and better you know and the fear of not being able, not being able to make the grade was there all the time you know it wasn't just up front in the beginning, you know, like, well, stand on your head and pass this course, then you'll, you know, it's all gravy from here. It's all downhill gravy train. <clears throat> That's not the way it was, man. It, it's like I got out of uh, the, the training group and got on a team and I was, you'd think the person's fresh out of training are going to be all in shape, you know, and have all their, all the essential skills they've been learning and practicing for the past, past six months. They're, they're going to, put everyone to shame. It just was not like that. I got on a team and I was just the, I was the punk again. You know, I was the, I was the worst shot. I was the slowest runner, you know, and I, I had just a bunch of, I had four or five guys on there to, uh, to try to be as good as one day, you know, just constantly trying to catch up with them. It's a motivation, but it's also like, um, it's an onus too, you know, or maybe it's a sword of mm. Damocles, but it's something there that's telling you that if you don't, you know, if you don't try hard every single day and be honest with yourself, that you could find your, you could find yourself uh, 
reassigned somewhere else, you know, for attitude, for performance. And I saw guys fall by the wayside and lose their position in Delta for both of those things, for physical performance, for attitude, and also, and this, this is a big deal in the community in this day and age, but for moral, uh, you know, failure to uh, act on a, on a, in keeping with the morals that are part of the culture in Delta Force. I mean, there's no lying, there's no cheating, there's no womanizing, there's no war crimes. You know, those things I feel strongly would never happen. They would never get a chance to happen because the guys on the teams, when they see that sort of thing coming up in a person, they're going to pull that guy and they're going to take care of him or, you know, he's going to be on his way somewhere else reassigned. And why do you think is that? Why do you think that such issues wouldn't happen in Delta compared to other SMEUs or special operations units? I've thought about that a lot. Not, not a lot. I've thought about that a, a tremendous amount. I, and that question is almost as hard as, George, where did we go wrong in Vietnam? You know? <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding, Stavros. It's, it is really difficult. I mean, uh, so I came up in the Green Berets, and that's the culture. And guys from the Army Green Berets, they seem to come, they seem to come from the same places in the United States. Well, we had some unusual guys like I, we had a guy that was a he was a, a PhD in genetics, you know, trying to figure out how to grow plants on top of rocks. That was an unusual person. You know, another guy was a private investigator and just, you know, on some some unusual backgrounds. But for the most part, the guys were cut from a pretty medium sized you know, piece of cloth. And, and even from the Green Berets, I've got experience being attached to uh, white side seals to do uh, some waterborne operations with seals, uh, underwater operations, submarine operations, and the sort. And that was just my good fortune for being brought up as a combat diver in the Army. So, I mean, I have this experience with, with seals from the white side seals, you know, for a number of weeks. And I, and I can see, not eventually, but immediately, I can see the difference in the personalities of the of the guys from the SEAL teams. I'm definitely shutting up when I get in a place like that. And I shut up. And so all I'm doing is listening to these guys talk about having personal conversations and having professional conversations about missions, operations, tactics, and the like. I can see the difference. I can see the difference in the culture uh, that is there on the SEAL teams. And I can tell that the guys from the SEAL teams are coming from different places you know, in, in America, different mm. backgrounds than the guys from the Green Berets. I could, I could tell that. And I could articulate it, too. I could have written about it. It would have been easy. And I have a bunch of examples to cite. But so I'm going through the operations and, and been graduating to Delta, rubbing elbows closely with Dev Group. There again, I've got a myriad of experience with uh, the guys from Dev Group, joint operations, taking over operations from, you know, dev group guys. Mm. I, I guess I can go on for way longer about the situation than we have time for. But I'll, I'll tell you that the guys from in Delta compared to the guys in dev group, they come from different places, different backgrounds in America. They've got different attitudes than the guys in, in, in dev group. Yeah, exactly. Dev group. 
recruits from the SEAL teams. So that immediately restricts the recruiting pool, whereas Delta is open to the whole military, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it is. It, abs- it absolutely is the whole mil- military. And in fact, I was there when the first U.S. Marine Corps, I believe he came from Onslow Beach area. It was battalion recon, recon as opposed to force recon. But the first Marines actually showed up and made it through selection. And the first brother from, from one of the SEAL teams came through selection and made it. And he not only made it, but he was at the very top of his class. And more than just what the one seal, but a uh, multitude of a number of seals have have come and made it through Delta selection, and you know are, are in the unit doing very well. On the flip side, you don't see any Delta guys even thinking about wanting to go be on a on a seal team. And it's real easy to say for the seals to say, "Well, that's because it's too hard for them, and they're not good enough." And they're like, "Well, that's." Okay, okay, let's say that, okay? Because that is something that guys like that would say. But the point is, uh, no, ain't nobody want no part of no SEAL team when you're in Delta. That's a fact. <laughs> so you, you get into Delta. You get assigned to A Squadron. Black Hawk Down happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You arrive in Mogadishu one day after the battle. Well, is that correct? Uh, that's correct. What was it like? We got there as a result of, as you know, the uh, Sea Squadron conducting the operations with their outer security perimeter being affected by the Ranger Regiment. That that did not go well at all, not at all. So if, I mean, the premise, if you want to call it a premise, it doesn't matter. The reason that, that got us out of Bragg and into Mogadishu was the failure of the interaction between Sea Squadron and the Ranger Regiment. So initially, we were going to we were going to pick up the uh, the security cordon. That would leave. I don't know what where that would have put the Rangers. It would have put them nowhere. It would have put them back in Washington State, I guess. It just totally rode them out of the mission. So we showed up there, you know, uh, under the for the reason that we were going to be the security cordon and you know work well together. And then that turned into well, we're going to we're going to we're going to alternate missions, you know, so that C Squadron doesn't have to get hammered every single time with actions on the objective. And that made a great sense to me. It's like, yeah, you know, one time you, one time me. We'll pick up outer security for C, let them, you know, go after a deed. Then the next mission will just rotate out. We'll take the pressure and let C Squadron, you know, pick up the outer security. But when we got there, actually we stepped right off a C5A aircraft and walked toward the terminal building, and there was a ceremony just about to begin for the guys that were killed in the battle. So our baptism was getting off an aircraft, going walking right up to this into the ceremony, and joining the rank and file while General Garrison spoke, and then you know the command sergeant major Mel Wick spoke. And then that I mean that's how we that's how we arrived. That's that's the first thing we saw, and we took up we took up a cover in a building. That was called the terminal building, and it was a couple hundred meters away from the hangar where C Squadron was. We had no cover in that building at all. It was it was wide open, and that same night, of course, we got mortared, and one of the mortar rounds just landed right smack in the middle of guys out right outside the hangar. 
the boss, Terry Boykin, was uh, talking with uh, Matthew Ryerson, one of the team mm-hmm. leaders. He had uh, his XO was there, Gary Harold, and Doc Marsh was there, and, and a number of guys anyway. And we were waiting, kind of waiting a turn to talk to Matt Ryerson because uh, I shook hands with Matt when I first got there because him and I are friends from way back. And um, he said, yeah, I'm glad you're here, George. And I said, yeah, well, I'll come by and see you tonight. And so I, we were, we were going to go talk to Matt, but he was talking to, you know, the, being a commander, you're not going to walk in there and interrupt. So I was just kind of hanging out on the sidelines, waiting for him to f- finish talking with, uh, with that group. Mortar just smoked him, just smoked right in on him. So he killed Matt Ryerson immediately. It took out more Sea Squadron men. Scott Miller, he was the assault commander there. He was already, he was already wounded in his arms from the, from the fight. And I could see that they had him sitting on the ground with his, his shirt pulled up over his head. And he had some, he had frags in his back. So he got hit again. And I was pretty upset about that. I was pretty bummed that the guys that had been, you know, had it so hard in the fight were already getting wounded again. And so 13 casualties is what we took just from that one round, as a matter of fact. And one A squadron man, I didn't know he was there at the time. He got, he took a frag in his hand, went in the back of his hand, and he he walked back to the terminal building where we were, and he sat on his cot, and he chewed it out of his hand and spit it on the ground. I thought that was pretty hua. That was Jamie Wiedemann, who's like sits up high in the board of the Surefire these days, the Surefire Corporation. Mm-hmm. So, and he didn't think anything of it and never said a thing, but it caught up to him, and he, he ended up getting a Purple Heart for that. That he did not want. He didn't want it, but it was like, you know, you will accept this award. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you conduct any follow-on missions after uh, after the battle? No. There were no actions on objective after that, neither for my squadron or C squadron. We did conduct uh, routine signature flights whereby, you know, we loaded up the full armada as if we were headed for a specific target and we just flew you know around and around the city just to, to draw fire and never did like by that time the Somalis had had no desire whatsoever to take any more shots at the American task force ranger because they got whipped pretty damn bad on the three of on the battle of the black sea so we flew day and night in the rain we did the typical signature flights and what a signature flight does for the enemy is, I mean, if, if the Armada picks up and starts flying only when it has a target, they know every time that it picks up that they're coming to get somebody. But if we pick up and just fly over the city routinely, they don't know when the shit is really on. So mm-hmm. uh, they end up getting, you know, just like anybody else, like, oh, they're flying again. Big deal. You get a little re- relaxed. Uh, but then the next thing you know, the, the helo swarm on a target and they're taken by surprise. We did that. We did a lot of, we flew every day, you know, somewhere. Uh, sometimes we just flew in the periphery of, of Mogadishu. The choppers would dump us on the ground and we'd do some, uh, we'd do, do some operations on the ground for a while. We flew down along the coast a little bit further and we did a whole bunch of uh, live fire training day and night, you know, calling in doing calls for fire with, with the helos, AH-6s, uh, the six-gun birds like Greg Coker flew. 
as well as the full-up daps. We've shot those quite a bit down the coast. We actually, even uh, our operation cell made us some uh, targets out of styrofoam, like these huge chunks of styrofoam. They were as big as a, like a small boat. And they took those and, and uh, dumped them out over the sea. And there they were floating. And we would fly by in the helos and we would uh, engage the targets, you know, from pods with our, with our weapons. M79s, you know, the, uh, we even heaved grenades at them, which was un- kind of fun. It was unusual. And we did it, we did it for uh, the, a nighttime operation as well. In, in the, that case, the uh, styrofoam target was laced with chem lights. Uh, and so we flew over those, the helos would bank, and we just, you know, unleash on these, these targets, heave some grenades at them, and just try, basically try to sink them, which is very difficult. And I wish you could point out, I, I'd like to point out, with regard to those uh, AH pilots, you know, they were carrying M4 carbines as well. Uh, and you would think, yeah, okay, so they've checked that block. They got an M4 there in the cabin with them, and maybe they have some bullets there. You know, the block is checked. But I'll tell you, at one point, I, went, I was sitting on the, on, the, on the starboard side, so the yeah, pilot side. I think mm-hmm. the co had, was flying it at the time. He had, he had the helm. And I, my primary ran dry, so I, was, I fired all my basic load of 5.56, and I was kind of out of the chute there. But, but then the pilot is, stuck his arm out of the, of the window or of his cabin. And he had a mag. He had a 30-round mag. I go, oh, the, pilot, the pilot's giving me his bullets. That's really nice. You know, so I slapped and racked and, and just, you know, kept firing. When I was done with those, you know, I, I passed the empty back. And he passed another full. I was like, damn, this guy's got two magazines. <laughs> Let me, I'm going to give him a golf clap right now. now. That's pretty cool. He did that like eight times. He passed eight magazines back to me. Damn. And I dumped them all, you know. And when we, we landed at Moog and got out, I, you know, I got out and went right up to him, just, you know, slapped him on the back or the shoulders. Just, you know, I said, you are a proper man. <laughs> th- thanks, for the, thanks for the resupply. And I assume that that was a direct consequence of the battle. Uh, yeah, because if you read the accounts during the battle and AHs, MHs, if some MHs sat down on the ground in some really tight alleys. Uh, for example, to pick up uh, John Smith and Daniel Bush, Dan Bush was killed. He got hit in the side where there was no plate, no armor protection. He got hit in the side with, with the AK. Uh, it didn't kill him immediately, but he was, you know, basically dying. Jim Smith ran out there to pick up Dan Bush. Jim actually was dragging or carrying Dan Bush, and he was accosted by, you know, one of the militia up close. Dan actually drew his uh, secondary, drew his forty-five with his right arm, and killed this guy while he was dragging Dan Bush. That's amazing. And he, he put. And this helo landed in an alley really tight, you know, like a feet clearance on the sides of the blade. Both the pilot and the co were leaning out the doors with MP5s just, you know, knocking down targets. Again, I mean, you know, a 9 by 19 round, that's a pistol round. It's not a, it's not an assault rifle round. It's so if it had effect, I mean, it still would kill people, but 
didn't have nearly the effect that like the AK-47 has even over the M4 carbine or the, or the CAR-15 rather. That's what we carried in the days. The CAR-15 still the same route. Mm-hmm. The, the pilots understood that they were kind of uh, pencil whipping it at the time with, with those weapons. They're, they're sexy, they're cool, they're compact. And that's important in, in, in a cabin of a little bird for Pete's sake. But when it comes right down to it, uh, it's just, it's got to be something bigger. They have to be, if they're going to be true to themselves, you know, they got to look themselves in the mirror and say, I need to have, an, I need to have a car 15. Yeah, that makes sense. Hi, I'm Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and founder of The Cray Club. Are you tired of scrambling to figure out the perfect Valentine's Day gift for the most important guy in your life? Think they'd like military-grade survival gear delivered directly to their doorstep? Then join over 250,000 members and gear up with Crate Club, the box built by Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and Special Ops guys. Sign up, and Crate Club will send you high-class military-grade gear like backpacks, flashlights, hammocks, holsters, vests, and more. That means whatever your favorite guy is into, it'll come right to his doorstep. Then he'll have the confidence of a Navy SEAL that it's going to get the job done. Subscribe at Crate Club today, and we'll go even further. We're including a free copy of my best-selling ebook, The Killing School, about America's elite snipers. I'm Brandon Webb, and I can't wait to raise the grade on military gear in America. So let me know you're in. Sign up today at CrateClub.com. C-R-A-T-E Club.com. So moving forward, the Balkans, you... You get reassigned from an assault squadron to the combat support troop, correct? From assault squadron to at the Advon troop, advance force troop. Yes. And you're conducting close target reconnaissance and low vis operations. Yes, the CRT, close target reconnaissance, general and specific reconnaissance, are battle space preparation, basically. You know, it, operations in advance of the assault forces. That was our charter. Was that a welcome change from an assault squadron? It was, yeah. I mean, I wanted it. I definitely wanted it. I mean, I wanted to, because I was already, had 18 years in the Army. I wanted to do my last couple in, like, the Advons, the Advon squadron, or the guys that were teaching, S&T, selection and training. I want, you know, go do a teaching job teaching the new guys that are coming in from West Virginia. I want to do something like that. It was a, it was a really typical path for persons that were working their way out of the unit, you know, because the kind of experience they could get in those areas were it was a little bit more conducive to something that we might be doing on the outside once we separated from the military. So I, I really wanted uh, ADVON, Advanced Force Operations, because like that mission sounded pretty cool to me. It was as close to singleton missions as you could as you could get. So I I, I asked for, and I I think all my foreign languages is probably what got me there. Because I during their selection, they had their own selection that lasted weeks. It, not everybody on the board thought I did really great, and they had some really strange reasons why. But they couldn't dispute that I had a. I was qualified in languages in the areas that they were operating in. So I, I could have, I could have like thumbed my nose at them, given them a raspberry and they still would have had to take me. So 
<laughs> how many right. how many languages do you speak? Seven. I have ratings. I have Defense Language Institute qualified ratings in six foreign language. And then I give myself an, a rating in English <laughs> <laughs> on my own. I think you deserve it. I mean, judging yeah, I by, my, by your traffic give, in the site. <laughs> I give myself a B. <laughs> <laughs> we still got to do anything we wanted, just like squadrons. I mean, I could, I could go grab some dirt bikes. We could go ride. We could uh, climb, do obstacle courses. We could do all the PT we wanted, and we could still shoot as much as we had time for, as much as we wanted, you know, but our focus was, you know, getting into these foreign countries and adapting and blending in and being able to operate in foreign countries without making it blatantly obvious that we were, you know, ugly Americans. And some of that preparation and some of the profile we developed went kind of deep without saying anything specific. Yeah, of course. It was a great adventure, honestly. It really was. And most of my time was, uh, well, all of my time was, was in Bosnia when I was, was, was in that, that squadron. And, and that language, Bosnian or Serbo-Croatian, that's not one that I came into the Advan squadron with. I got my qualification after having been in Bosnia with the assault squadrons and with the Advan squadron. You know, I, I just finally said, okay, I... I think I'm at a certain level and I'm going to go take this DLI exam and see how I do, how I do. And I, I did well. I qualified for pay in that language, which really pleased me because I didn't think I was quite, you know, that good at it. So you were getting paid for each language? Uh, no. The way it works is it was $100 a month if you qualified in a language. And then that was it. it was $100 was the max. And so I was... I had a number of languages that I could have tested in, and I did. I did test in them just for the hell of it, because I mean, taking that test was a really great training. Is, is what it was. It was a really great exercise in the language, so I did it for that value. But the, the language that I was getting paid for was Cantonese Chinese. You know, since since back when I was in the Green Berets, I just mm -hmm. took that. Ex I took that exam every year. I think I was the only person in the army taking that exam. And I kind of hate to say it, but it's a matter of fact that taking that language, that test every year after year, I was getting pretty damn good at taking that exam. And it was the same exam. It was the same year. exam. No, shit. That's, that, that's no good. I mean, that's <laughs> no good. <laughs> I mean, you take the Spanish one, the turnover. Of, of that exam is going to be high. You know, you're going to change it up. You know, every year you're going to get something different. But Cantonese, like they had no one taking it except this one fucker. <laughs> only, he's taking it every year. We're not going to re revamp the test for them. <laughs> so, and, so every year I took it, man, I was just like, I was getting a two plus three, which is the highest. A three, three is the highest I could ever get based on my background. That's just the, that's the rule. And I was getting a two plus three, and I was just, it was irritating as hell. I was uh, <laughs> agonizing over, I thought I was getting every single question right, you know? Mm. But obviously, I was missing something. I was only getting a two plus in my reading comprehension. And I was, I was like, what question am I missing? You know, which one am I getting wrong? It boiled down to like two. 
these two that I thought are, you know, these are the problem areas. I'm not sure which is the right answer. And I used to, I used to ask Chinese people, you know, real Chinese people. I used to ask them the question and give them the four answers. Like the, the, it was a, or it was written in Chinese. It's this, it's this expression and there's four answers. And one of them is absence makes the heart grow fonder. And the other is a miss as good as a mile. And the next one is can't see the trees for the forest or can't see the forest for the trees. And the fourth one was like something like, I wouldn't know him from Adam. Okay, those are the four answers. <laughs> Damn. And I would get, I would get, I would get a Chinese dude. Hey, you, are you Chinese? Yeah, come here. Come here. <laughs> you know? And I, and I would write out the, the question for him, you know, you know, and I'd have him read it and I'd give him the four answers and they would look at me and go, what are you asking me? I don't know. You know, I said, cool. Okay, great. Native Chinese aren't getting this question right. How am I supposed to get it right? So I would just answer it different every time. Every year I'd answer it different until finally, bam, you know, I got 3-3. And I, it took me four years. So you, yeah. Mm. yeah, it took four years because, well, there was four answers. So it took four years. And of course, the last answer <laughs> was the one they were telling me was right. So. But anyway, so I, I got that, and my last year in the service, language pay went up to $300 a month, right? Mm. And you could, take as, you could take as many languages te- exams as you wanted to get to 300. And I just, and I knew I was out. I knew I was on my way out. I just wanted that so bad, you know, like that was the ultimate achievement if I could do it. So I would take, I took, you know, Cantonese, bam, there's $100 right there. And then I took, took French, German, Spanish was, a, was another good one. And when I, got, I, when I got those, I hit $300. And I didn't have to take the Serbo-Croatian, you know, to, to, to try to get the 300 I was able to get the 300 with those languages. But so ultimately, you know, I made it, you know, I made the 300 bucks and I got to use that as bragging rights. And all of these languages, were the standards academic or street? So for example, studying French or taking the French exam, was it something that you could actually use on the street? Or was it something you would read on Le Figaro or uh, High End? It was academic, Stavros, I'll tell you that. Because there, there really was like no slang anywhere in any of those. It was all proper across the board, you know. I mean, the subjects were, you didn't have to have a background in, in particular subjects to be able to understand the passage that they're speaking, you know, in the foreign language. It was some pretty general stuff, you know. It, it would be something like Bill's father, you know, he's a big believer in Western medicine. He wants his son to be treated by Western doctors, you know, that school. His mom, she's more like she tries to get up there to the Eastern kind of uh, medicine and treatment where you're taking strange herbs, uh, you know, and these potions, et cetera, et cetera. And they're constantly struggling between each other. And in the end, the kid, he's not really getting well. <laughs> so that's pretty easy to understand if, if, if you can understand the language. And in the, in the questions, boil down to something like the right answer was between the kid's mom and his dad, he just wasn't getting any better. And that was the right answer. 
but it's not like they delved into some discussion about, uh, you know, Renaissance paintings and then ask <laughs> questions about, was it Claude Monet or was it, uh, you know, Caravaggio or Raphael? Like, I don't know. You know I understood it. But I just don't know the freaking answer. So you're getting out. That was yes, 2000 or early 2001? It was literally, it was January the 1st of 2001. Yeah. A few nine months later, the towers got down. We are at war, and if I'm not mistaken, the unit reached out to former operators to come back with a blank check, correct? That's right. That's right, boss. And um, I don't mind telling you that when, when the actual towers did come down, I was, I was in an aircraft. I was flying from the East Coast back you know, to Nevada. So I was airborne in a, in a Southwest airliner. When the towers got hit, we actually, when we landed, you know, I was looking out the window and I was saying to myself, nothing's right here. This is all wrong. This is not, this is not, you know, the airport at, uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada. I don't know what airport this is. And then they came over the intercom and said, yeah, we just landed in Dallas, Fort Worth <laughs> airport for emergency landing. And I was wondering uh, what the hell's going on. And so anyway, it was, we deplaned. And we're in that holding area. I could see the TV as I was standing there in the, in the crowd of people. I could see the World Trade Center's burning on the TV screen. And, and, I, and I was, uh, pardon my, my French, I was kind of fucked up because I had taken a sleep med, opened mm. the sleep the whole way, and I would have, except we landed at Dallas. And so I was prematurely awakened from this med and was still under the influence of it. But I was understanding what I was seeing. I was, I was understanding that the towers were burning, then, then a tower collapsed. Bam, it just whoosh. It went down. And I said, wow, this is as serious as it gets. And that other tower there, it's going to collapse. So here in a couple of minutes. And of course it did. And yeah, so back at, uh, at my job, I'm working contract with the, with the uh, Department of Energy, the DOE, there were as something like uh, as many as 13 former Delta Force guys working there that James Sutter's had recruited and, you know, working in different areas. And it was, we wondered that with such a number of us that had gotten out so quick and had pooled ourselves here in Las Vegas, working on this contract, we wondered what the, the unit would think of that, you know, and, and the speculation went from, Oh, they're going to order us back, you know, to they're going to request us to come back, you know, or they're going to guilt us into coming back. But from my point of view, so I'm like, guys, get over yourselves, man. You know, you're not that, you're not all that. You know, they don't even know you guys are alive anymore. Us, us they don't know we're even alive. They don't care. <laughs> but lo and behold, yeah, you know, uh, right after 9-11, James, the boss, he said, hey, the unit's sending down Sergeant Major Rick Hall, who is the guy, the last guy I worked for in the Advanced Force Operations Squadron with Sergeant Major Rick Hall. And they're sending Rick to come down and he wants to talk to us. <laughs> and we said, okay, we know what that's about. And he, he came and it was great. We all piled in a conference room and other people tried to come in. We told him to get the hell out. And, you know, we did this, the five minutes of dude, dude, catch up, you know, this and that. And then, <laughs> then Rick, he's, he, he finally just said, okay, so let's, let's get, let's get on with this, uh, so basically, the unit would like to have each of you guys come back immediately. 
And the offer is that you guys write your ticket. You know, you tell us what it is you want to do. I mean, you can be, you know, running as fast as you can with a rifle, shooting it, throwing grenades, or you can sit back in an office, you know, filling out reports. The point is you you tell us what you want to do and, you know, we'll get you that position if you'll come back. And so he finished up his spiel and then, you know, he was gone. And then James, before he left, he said, Hey, I want to, I can't tell you guys what to do. And I, but I just encourage you to make your own decision, you know, go off by yourself and think about it and make your own decision. Don't get in groups and say, what are you guys going to do? What are you guys going to do? And then come up with a group decision and, and race back or, or not race back. Just and we, that was really cool of him to say that. And, it, and I thought that was really important, too. And I made my decision, which was to not go back. I don't know who in the group was also going to decide that way. But in the end, nobody went back. Not one person went back. But ironically, and, and I say that I say it is ironically, not coincidentally, but ironically, almost every one of those guys well, every one of the guys besides me went off to a contract with, with Triple Canopy, if you remember Triple Canopy. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, in the, day, in, in the day, you had Blackwater, that was SEALs. You had Triple Canopy, which is more Delta and Green Berets, you know. And, and, and you know, Stavros, if you look back then and comparing those two groups too, which one had, which one had the problems? You know, which one was in the media <laughs> with the fucking problems? I can trace you know? a pattern. Yeah, I mean, who was shooting civilians and, unfortunately, who was getting captured and uh, hung from a bridge, well, however that ended up happening, but who was having the problems and getting the bad press? Well, it wasn't Triple Canopy. But all of the guys, that didn't, they didn't go to the unit, back to the unit, they went to Triple Canopy, and all I could think of is, what in the hell for? I don't understand. You know, you, you get out of the unit and you go to... to another contract and you're doing the same thing you know you're well okay you're making big money really fast but you're at the same risk you know fighting for your life with a rifle that you were doing when you're in the unit um so those guys chose big money fast and i chose they chose big money acute and i chose little money chronically and i just you know kept a peaceful job well not a peaceful job at all but a job Back in the States, you know, relatively safe, not toting around a Gat Gatling gun uh, and taking care of my family. You, you know, I mean, getting out of Delta and then being away from your family most of the year, carrying a rifle. I mean, what the hell is the difference? And so that's must have taken a toll to your family life and everyone's. Yes. Yes. So I'm happy that I made the decision on my own. I can add this to the to the mix, Stavros, is that, you know, getting out of the unit, getting out of Delta was really tough. It was real tough. You know, once I was out, I mean, I never even went back to any of the functions, never went back to a informal or a formal or any kind of get togethers. To me, it was like the, the last view I had of the compound was in my rear view mirror as I drove away. And that absolutely was the last view of the compound. And you know, I, I, I'm never going to go back there. Getting out was really tough, so I'm, I would never go back. That's deep. But now you're writing about Delta and you are drawing, most importantly. Tell us oh, about yeah. your 
your cartoon? What makes you begin drawing? The cartoon stuff. I mean, I started drawing, you know, of course, when I was a, when I was a kid. I, I just really enjoyed it. And it was all for just fun and pleasure. It was just entertainment. And it, and it was pretty cool. And then for some reason, uh, I remember when I was about uh, 13 years old. You know, some, something was driving me that day. You know, and I wasn't really sure what, but I, it was real specific. And I was doing some really intentional, specific things. You know, found a paper, went through the house, found a pencil. And then I went to uh, my mother's record collection, and she was a huge fan of folk singer or country singer. John Denver is who he was. And I was flipping through her, you know, vinyl LP albums from record players back in the day. And I had one of his albums. I knew it was one of her, or had his, his record. It was one of her favorite. And there's a picture of his face on there. You know, hi, I'm John Denver. And I sat down with my paper and that album next to it. And I said, that face on the album looks like this. And I started drawing with the pencil. And I was shading and I was doing all this crap that I'd never done before. And when I was done, I said, my picture on my paper, to me, looks just like the picture on the album. And I was satisfied, right? That I took the picture to my mother, you know, this is her favorite thing. I wanted to surprise her. I says, hey, mom, I drew a picture. You know, and she's like, oh, uh, that's nice. I go, well, you want to see it? She goes, oh, well, here. Yeah, okay. Let me, let me see. <laughs> and she picked it up. and. The, the look on her face was unfreaking believable, man. She looked like she just saw a ghost, man. She exhaled yeah. all of her, all of the air out of her lungs and gasped, you know, and woke up in the hospital 14 days later after a coma. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was really clear to me as like I said, that proves to me that what I drew does look like what's on that album, you know, which is a, a photograph of a real person in real life. And uh, yeah, she just she just couldn't get over it, man. She had to sit out. So I, from there, I just started drawing, you know, everything, all these different faces, and and people were amazed. And then I I got into I started drawing cartoons on my own, just for myself, for of things that I thought were funny. I thought oh, that's really funny. I made it, you know, it's my humor. I thought of it, and uh, I put it down in a cartoon. I said, ah, I think that's funny. And I'd show them to people, and most people would go, ah, this is, this is freaking funny, man. You should do more of these. But, but a whole lot of people would look at it and go, well, I don't get it. I, I, I don't even get it. And even if I explained it to them, they would go, I still don't get it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I understand. It's just, it's just a, it's a thing that you either get it or you don't. But I found that you know, people really, really enjoyed their cartoons, man. And they'd go, oh, do some more, do some more. And it, it's kind of like the photography I ended up doing is that people really enjoy your photography, especially if it's done well of them or especially mainly if it's done of their children. They go absolutely bonkers and nuts over good photos of their kids. And, and it just pleased me to no end to be able to like produce these and give these to these people and make them happy, you know. And, and I was never able to charge anybody of anything for my photography. It's just the way it was. But, but the cartoons and the drawings, it was, it was the same thing. People got so much enjoyment out of it that it's, it became a thing that I could always do in, in certain uh, settings, in certain surroundings. Great icebreaker 
And I, I did a few obscure ones when I was on my, my, uh, my Green Beret teams. I didn't really start getting heavy into it until I was at Key West working with uh, the, the Dive Academy. I really started getting into it there. Uh, so many situations were happening. You know, there's just so much going on. And I found humor in uh, uh, just the majority of it. And, you know, we had, we had a mix there. We had some SEALs, a couple of SEALs there building it from the teams. So there was always that petty and yet harmless rivalry, you know, joking between the two. Uh, so I, I started doing the cartoons. The guys were going nuts. They loved it. And, and I just started putting them in a binder, a black binder on the bar. I would get requests every day, you know, from, from people, George, you got to do a cartoon, you know. I go, okay, what happened? Tell me what happened. And it, and it would tell me the situation, and I would think about it, and I'd put something down on paper that I thought was humorous, and people would go nuts over it. But one of the harder parts about it is that guys would come up and they would, they would explain how the cartoon should look, you know, and that would never go over well with me. It just didn't, it didn't sound funny the way I explained it. You know, just, just, just tell me the story and I'll put it together. So you had to put the humor in the yeah, story. It, yeah, like, hey, draw a picture of Bill walking on the beach. And, and he's, he's saying, here I am walking on the beach. And that's <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> no, it, it needs more. It needs a little more. Man, have, the, have, the, have the flood tide like going in the opposite direction saying, we're not going near that guy. I don't know. Something. It has to have something. <laughs> that's funny. People were almost demanding them in Key, in, in Key West. They were just like, hey, where's the cartoon on, on yesterday's incident? Like, oh, I'm working on it. Give me a break. And that carried over really well to Delta, you know, since I was a nobody again, you know, a new guy and a nobody. And they had a bar. Just like in Key West, the first opportunity I had to do one, I, I would do the cartoons and I would hang them on the bulletin board. And the guys would walk by and uh, they got a big kick out of it. So I started saving them once again in a black binder. And um, the, the popularity was just as, as good, as great, if not better, than it was at Key West. It, you know, again, guys would, they would be standing by the empty bulletin board, you know, just hanging out <laughs> by the empty bulletin board. He's got to stick it up here somewhere. We want to be the first ones to see it and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, I, I'd be on the bulletin board for a, an amount of time, say a couple of days, then I would put it in the book. And I, I could never walk through the crisis lounge and not see somebody thumbing through the book. And guys from other squadrons would actually come in. Hey, where's the book? Oh, it's right here. Help yourself. And they would flip through it. Ha 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 ha. And have a great time. And <laughs> Pat McNamara simultaneously right across the spine in B Squadron was doing the very same thing. He is an amazing cartoonist, that guy. And he put together a, a book for B Squadron and it's badass. And there was actually a third guy over in C Squadron that made himself the C Squadron representative. And he tried to keep keep up, carry on the tradition, keep up the tradi tradition of developing a cartoon book. And we came together and presented to the command that we would like to combine all three squadrons' cartoons into one publication and put it in print. And we would keep it in-house and, you know, give it, give it out as, uh, you know, gifts to visitors, uh, to VIPs. 
to that sort, make it available to all, to the uh, unit members that they could get themselves a copy. And the command flat turned us down just like that. Just said no. And I thought, fuck you. That really <laughs> rubbed me the wrong way, man. <laughs> oh my, I just. I forget who was in charge at the time. It wasn't Bargewell. It was not Eldon Bargewell, but I was, I thought that this is like the greatest thing. And they just pissed it away for some bullshit officer reason, you know, that won't even make sense if, if we ask him to explain it to us. I was bitter about that. I, it, it wasn't even so much as my stuff, but it's like, you know, these other two guys, that's, it's really good stuff. And to not preserve that in some organized fashion, it's a big, it's a great big screw you and it's a mistake. And in the end, you're giving them to soft rep. And I'm really you happy are. to do it. I'm really Here you are. happy as hell. People have been enjoying them immensely. I'm just really happy that I'm just not the only one sitting in my room, sucking my thumb and flipping through my old cartoons. And I get to push them out to people. And I, I, got, I get some really great feedback. From the folks, you know, if, you know, the command back at Bragg is upset, I'm like, I, I got to tell you, man, I got to tell him, fuck you. You had your chance you know? <laughs> and you insulted me. And that uh, this is what happens now with the cartoons. Yeah. You know, it's not in house. It's out of house. Some hard truths right there. Well, George, yeah. thank you very much for joining us for the podcast. Absolutely, my man. I'm telling you, it's great to be able to kick back and push sit down the pencil you know and not uh, not just be smoking through writing all the time and because as you know our boss is a real slave driver yeah and, if i find that guy a jerk, he's a real jerk he ought to be hung <laughs> i can tell you that he ought to be hung yeah we should, we should uh, set up a lynch party a lynching party <laughs> pitchforks and torches right on it's, it's a real privilege and for me to be asked to be on a podcast, man. So thank you very much. I'm indebted to you, sir. Thank you, man. Thank you. Have a great day. And talk, talk to, to you soon. <laughs> You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.